Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Bioethics in the Margins. I'm your co-host, Kirk Johnson, and we have a special guest filling in for our co-host, Amelia Barwise, Dr. Elizabeth Chang. She is one of the founders of Bioethics in the Margins, and she's going to be interviewing our wonderful guest today. Gabo Aurora is a world-renowned multi-award-winning immersive artist, professor, entrepreneur, and former UN diplomat who works with the most cutting-edge emerging technologies, including virtual and augmented reality, to sell some of the most important stories of our time. Widely recognized as a pioneer of new documentary formats, his work, part of the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, has been described by the BBC and LA Times, amongst many others, as game-changing, powerful, moving without precedent, and transcending all the typical barriers of rectangular cinema. He has designed and led campaigns of significant measurable impact, raising millions of dollars for the United Nations, UNICEF, USC Shoah Foundation, and the Nobel Peace Prize Committee. He has had the honor of being the UN's first ever creative director, a Davos World Economic Forum Forum Arts and Culture Leader, a member of the Council of Foreign Relations, and is the founding director of a new lab and academic department, the first of its kind dedicated to immersive storytelling and emerging technologies at John Hopkins University. His creative tech and production studio, Lightshed.io, is based in Brooklyn. We're pleased to have Professor Gabo Aurora. Uh, so to start, um, what actually made you go into this particular field of immersive technologies and working within uh, virtual reality? I was having a midlife crisis. Um, I was uh, at the United Nations, and it's a very bureaucratic organization. Um, I had reached what many would consider the pinnacle of their career, working on the 38th floor, the top floor of the UN building with Secretary General then Ban Ki-moon as an economic and policy advisor and um, I just was uh, writing reports I didn't think anyone was reading and seeing our influence kind of year after year become less um, and as as an organization being taken less seriously. Um, The UN is extremely important um, but has a really tough time communicating its value to people and so I started exploring new technologies to see how we could maybe reach different audiences and connect with people in ways that our traditional messaging wasn't doing. So I, th- I think it might be helpful 
for some of our audience mem members to have a real clear idea of what your work actually entails. Can you give us a, a sort of definition of the type of virtual reality work that you're doing? I think the best way to think about it is that you can kind of use this technology to transport people into the middle of um, another reality and kind of have them learn not just through facts or just normal kind of logic, but through something that's experiential, where they're kind of living through a certain reality that they wouldn't get to otherwise. Uh, many people hearken or like to think about this as story living instead of storytelling, uh, where you get to kind of um, take a more active role in, in these types of new worlds. And so my work started with a documentary that I made at the UN in about 2015 called Clouds Over Cedra, which was using what's now kind of basic technology of 360 video, uh, but back then was very new. And really when, one thing to keep in mind is that when we speak of virtual reality, it really is something that's constantly evolving. And now I'd say people won't use that term as much. And there's been a rebrand to call it the metaverse, you know, in some ways, which has a lot in common with not only virtual reality, but all the other forms of emerging technologies that will work within um, that world. So um, a lot of my work is just basically trying to give people a deeper understanding of what's happening on social issues that is much more than a flat passive experience, but an experience where people have to kind of be more active participants and kind of live through. I was able to watch a couple of the movies, including Clouds of Ercedra and uh, Waves of Grace. And, you know, sitting there, it sort of feels like you could reach out and touch the people that you filmed, um, which is really powerful. Um, what, do you th what do you think makes uh, VR such a powerful tool in this regard? I think VR um, is powerful because it, it hacks your senses and it has a greater sort of neurobiological, you guys are the, the, the doctors and scientists, but the more a neurobiological kind of interaction um, that I think um, is very unique to um, virtual reality, where you might have that to a degree in some other ways, but your, your, your mind is being kind of tricked to think it's somewhere else and, and doing something else. And, you know, if you think about, um, uh, has anyone read Proust, you know, uh, with Madeline, the Madeline cookie in some ways? that how him kind of having a Madeline cookie kind of takes him back to his childhood, you know, and, and, and creates sort of sensations in him. Uh, I think virtual reality has like a, can have a similar thing where when you go through that experience, how you think about it afterward is more akin to something that happened to you, um, that you were somewhere else. In some ways, People will say our memories are geotagged, you know, where 
if you are able to go back to where you were as a child, all of a sudden you're flooded with all these feelings, you know? And I think similarly with, um, with, with virtual reality, they is able to kind of give you these sort of new experiences that rest and stay with you in ways that wouldn't otherwise, because it's able to kind of act more, um, like a, like a memory, like a dream and, and much more, your, your recall of it is going to be very different. Um, which is an interesting segue when you think about virtual reality trainings, which are, are really booming and are really being studied um, across many universities, where people are realizing through this sort of new immersive learning that people's retention is better and people are able to learn in better ways because they're actually able to kind of have this direct experience they wouldn't otherwise. Uh, do you think empathy can be taught? And what is the role of virtual reality in building empathy? Empathy, excuse me. Um, I think, you know, we have to look at uh, other ways that empathy is engendered. And the one that comes to mind and I think has been probably studied or talked about a bit is through literature. Um, there is some evidence that people who read literature and are able to put themselves in other people's shoes are able to kind of have a, a deeper empathy to a certain group of people or a cause or a topic. And I think similarly, depending how virtual reality is designed, um, I think it can have those similar, uh, those similar impact. Um, it's not just the technology itself. Uh, I think a lot of people make that mistake where they just think, let's just try this. It actually is having to tell a story within it that works within that medium that creates that empathy. Because I think the technology in itself is inert, uh, but really when you find people who want to use it to express uh, a new way of telling a story, then I think that's when things happen that are, are very different. Uh, all of my work has been motivated because I have felt that traditional media or let's say more normal means has not able to has not been able to capture the nuance and the complexity of, of that kind of lived experience for people that are going through certain situations. And it's very common, you know, when you're at the United Nations or you've done humanitarian work. I think a lot of people always feel like they can't really express um, how how wonderful and resilient and different it is to actually be involved working side by side with a lot of people on these issues. And I think what VR does is kind of break those barriers and allow you to have, you know, to look eye to eye with someone, to have dinner with them, to join them in their schools. like you're able to kind of go into a way that I think is a lot less hierarchical and a lot more kind of like a shared experience where you're understanding a reality through their eyes um, and their perspective. Interesting. Uh, do you think in the future, virtual reality will, I don't want to say replace the traditional t teaching structure with the human humans in a classroom, uh, but 
how do you think it would enhance and benefit students? We see some of this in the realities of virtuality today. But in the future, how do you think it will change more? Will it be more prevalent or kind of be in the same usage as we're seeing it today? I think there's there's just an incredible amount of of possibility um, of how it can be used. And I think, you know, uh, it, it has a lot of, you know, potential for, um, the, the, I, I think the problem is not necessarily that the technology doesn't exist. The technology exists. We don't have as many people um, creating within it to kind of showcase new ways of kind of engaging with certain material. So I think in the future, if more people who are aesthetically or artistically inclined are able to make certain products that... Because right, right now, I think artists and storytellers, they will maybe make a podcast or they'll do a Netflix show or they'll do other things. But we're not necessarily saying make make some tech products with this or go ahead and showcase how it would work and i think once we kind of break that silo i think we'll have some really wonderful types of things happen uh, because i think technology still is seen as being very intimidating and really open to a certain type of person and i think as soon as we can expand the diversity of who works with technology and then who works with technology to create new products, uh, I think we will have, I think, a lot more impact. Um, but, you know, it, it, it really, it, we, we really are, I mean, I think it's probably agreed that we're in some sort of mess with where technology is now. And I think a lot of people would say that's a result of there being a very limited type of person who is making those products and who has the opportunities to do that. So if we can, and, and I'm not just saying this because, you know, it's this thing to say about diversity and inclusion. It really has incredible consequence for the types of things and the possibilities of what this technology could do. So I, I'm hopeful that that would change. And if that changes, I think we would have things that are going to be much more interesting and by diversity and inclusion of course that's based on you know identity groups and gender and race and all those things but really i also mean in terms of skill set you know in terms of artists and and storytellers working with you know scientists to kind of create something new you know i think that in mm -hmm. itself is something that also gets talked about but just doesn't happen um, and a lot of my work at Johns Hopkins, which is a, a very world-renowned um, school of, of public health and medicine and science, um, you know, I see my role there as working with leading researchers to create new products that we think could kind of have a different sort of engagement than if we didn't otherwise. Can virtual reality help increase ethical behavior in society? That, that's a really tough question. Um, that I don't know um, how to answer necessarily um, because um, I don't know if it will um, and 
you know, I, I really think it depends. It's like kind of like, can computers enhance ethical behavior? Do films enhance ethical behavior? Um, I think virtual reality will be will be very will be very um, wide ranging, and I think you know it, it, it it's a new it's a new power you know it's a new superpower of technology of what it does and how it can work. So I think I think it really will depend on how it's kind of um, who creates in it how it might be regulated or not and how it could kind of create new possibilities. I, I do think, you know, if if you look at if you look at um, photography, you know, it's an interesting sort of analog to thinking about what could happen with virtual reality. I think, you know, when photography came on the scene, it was this sort of new truth telling medium because it, it's so photo real we didn't we take that for granted now but that was something that was exceptional um, at the time in the late 1800s and I think there was a lot of people who felt that it would lead to a more ethical society because now you could see um, horrible things around the world and war and poverty you know in ways that uh, give people a sense of presence you know and that and virtual reality let's just say it does what photography does but times maybe a hundred if it's done well because you're kind of not only watching this you know the experience of, of, of war in a static way in some ways you can be in it and, and, and can really feel what it feels like to be on a battlefield and to go through a lot of very difficult things um, and um, but you know many would argue that the photography hasn't led to a more ethical society um, you know necessarily and um, but some would argue that certain pictures have changed our world and have created more impact, like maybe Migrant Mother um, during the course of Depression or, or some pictures from Vietnam. Um, so I really do think it depends on, on how it will be and what it, what it would be, but I do think it will have um, as strong, if not greater, impact than photography had on, on the 20th century. So one of the other things I was curious about, you know, as we're talking about potentially building empathy and the implication um, because because of the power of the virtual reality setting is there a concern about trauma for viewers I mean yeah absolutely um, absolutely there is yeah I think uh, but I think um, I think there's also a lot of research being done on exposure therapy using VR where if people have certain phobias and they're exposed to them in in virtual reality um, there is a way in combining that with a kind of therapy that kind of helps people overcome certain phobias and, and traumas and so I think a lot of this is not only what's within the headset but the kind of expertise that already exists to complement that around it you know whether that's a curriculum or a therapist or or other other sort of ways that one can test um, efficacy of things and so that's where you know that's where things get very interesting and 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 exciting but of course there's risk you know and of course there's going to be certain failures and 
of course, I think we have to, um, you know, kind of figure out a safe way to allow for those without being too trepidatious necessarily, because I think um, as long as people are well-intended, um, failure should be okay, you know, um, and we don't want to uh, purposely, of course, hurt or, or, or traumatize people or, or do anything that's counterproductive. But I think um, it's something that we just have to realize that is very new and, we, and it might have some unintended consequences. So we do have to do the best we can, but also I think it's a very early time of where we're learning different things, where we shouldn't be afraid to try things that might not have worked in other mediums or might feel counterintuitive, but in some ways um, might have might have a, a different outcome uh, because it is a whole new world and a whole new way of engaging with it. So, um, and and I think I think um, you know th those are those are the ways that I, I think are important. It it because it does hack your senses and you can live through experiences. Of course, it can be something that can be very very terrible for certain people. Um, and I think with my own work. Um, I'm always, it's always a fine line, um, and I think we're always trying to see how much we can push certain boundaries and how much we um, can kind of create a new grammar of how one could tell certain stories that could help um, avoid those types of things. But, you know, the important thing is, you know, you know, when we, when I did something on the refuge, you, saw, you mentioned Clouds Over Cedra and Waves of Grace, and I've done things on the Holocaust, I've done things on nuclear weapons I've you know it's like I've done things on, on a lot of things um, the approach usually is still um, I don't think you have to be on the nose so much I think you can kind of be a lot more subtle and people will still have a very engaged response to a lot of these things so that's generally how we've we've gone forth with it um, maybe not as much in this last project um, that I just did called Paradise that was just at South by Southwest. But I think we're always trying to see what are some different ways depending on what kind of technology and things we're using. Sort of thinking about current events, um, what are your thoughts about the war in the Ukraine? Is there a, a space for VR to be helpful in, in, in that situation? On the other hand, are you worried about the massive misinformation campaigns and what might happen if this technology were in sort of the wrong hands? As, you know, it's a very good question. Um, I think all technologies can be manipulated. And, you know, we, um, you know, I think Abraham Lincoln, um, you know, was, I think, the, the first sort of president when photography kind of came around and there's already been evidence that some of his portraits were kind of photoshopped in in the 19th century way um, just to show him as being um, more you know like he, there's a very famous one of, of him with Nathaniel uh, Calhoun's body in his face in order to project a kind of like dignity that or, or a kind of strength that he might have not necessarily portrayed with, with his own body. Um, you know, there's, uh, uh, Errol Morris has written a whole book on an old photograph from the Crimean War in the 19th century, where it became 
became known that a lot of the footage was doctored in some ways, where the cannonballs were put in a certain symmetrical way to show a greater emphasis on, on violence and other things. So that's not going to change because humans don't change, you know. The humans are humans, you know, and there's there's the good and the bad. And, and I think the technology does amplify it and make things more out of control. And I think the Ukraine war, if anything, I mean, the power of memes, the power of deep fakes, I think, have, have taken on a whole new dimension, you know. Um, but I think that should make us question what is the way to know the truth about something, you know. Should it be social media and the internet, <laughs> you know. Are there other ways, you know, that we can kind of think that are not reliant on big technology. So I think, I think those are... Those are the things that I would I would think about um, with virtual reality and just emerging technologies in general. Um, I think that the technology, of course, with the, the the experiences you mentioned of mine, kind of help build empathy and help you know show a world and, and kind of understand and, and increase donations and increase people's giving. You know, so um, um, I think I think in that way there's always uh, you know, a use for it for people that wouldn't necessarily kind of get engaged. But where I think it's more more interesting, um, and that's happening in more sort of digital VR experiences or metaverse, is a kind of um, where people come together to kind of create and share and, and build something together. Uh, and even if it's virtual, I think we all really crave a kind of community and we create, you know, we, we crave like a, a, a world that's not bordered, you know, as much as it is. And I think this technology, it will fulfill the original promise of what the internet was supposed to, to be, you know, like a more democratic, open, free place where your nationality or, you know, wherever you are shouldn't matter and that you should be, feel like you have a place in. And I think some of those worlds, some of those ways I think, um, you know, can be an interesting form of solidarity um, with people so that we don't feel as removed with what's happening, but also not necessarily just horrified by pictures that we see. Because in any sort of, um, you know, in my experience with the UN, of course, there's horrible things and conflict and everything. But at some point, um, there is still a way to meaningfully engage with people to kind of do something in a shared way. And I think this technology, there could be something that I think VR could do that can get us to collaborate and build things together that would be very different otherwise. Yeah, that was one of the things I found so deeply moving about, uh, in particular, the one that's coming to my mind is Waves of Grace, although I'm sure it's president in a lot of your work, but was the way that you sort of could see her whole story uh, and, and see her as a whole person rather than just sort of a one-dimensional sort of victim kind of portrayal. Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, that's what's most interesting about this medium is it it it, it doesn't lend itself to that kind of one dimension. It's multi-dimensional and I think in some ways you're able to kind of you know capture an essence and a kind of um, a feeling from an environment and people that I think is 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 very unique and, and special and 
again, we work very hard at telling that kind of story, you know, and we might have been successful at it, but I think it's about thinking, you know, how to keep doing that as the technology evolves and there's different tools that we have. Is there any limits to VR uh, that you think that we should not actually tap into any lines that we should not cross? Well, I mean, it's important to note that virtual reality is always evolving and is becoming, the definition of it is, is constant, and the fidelity of it and the experience of it is something that has made incredible progress in the past, let's say, five to ten years. And I think will continue to mature in, in new and unexpected ways. I mean, I think no one could have envisioned the iPhone, um, you know, at the turn of the century and something kind of clicked that kind of brought, you know, human touch into um, a digital experience, brought the internet out into the street right. <laughs> in some ways right. and, and, and changed things with, you know, the very act of putting a cell phone camera in. I think you have to look at virtual reality, augmented reality, um, artificial intelligence, immersive audio, all these things as being kind of part of a new kind of spatial computing internet platform where we kind of just look at things when we open a browser and we go into this other world um, and it has all these different experiences. Um, one of them is this where I can talk to you. Um, but imagine, you know, it'll go into a, a possibility where there'll be very unexpected use cases and everything. So I wouldn't limit anything right now. You know, I think it's very, very early. Um, and I, and I, and as I mentioned to Liz, I think there's going to be mistakes and I think we just have to, um, kind of make, you know, make sure that, you know, people, um, you know, as long as it's not with, with bad intention, I think these things are, it's going to be a bit of a rocky time. Um, and there will be some things that are not ideal. But in a lot of ways, I think that's what experimentation um, is. It has that sort of risk. So I don't think there's anything off limits. And I think in general, we just need to be careful in how we design it and think about it. Um, and I think we need to kind of work across disciplines to kind of make things so that people, you know, who might be doing one thing can share in the expertise of other people that can kind of give a different perspective, whether it's on trauma or, or other things that might we might want to be um, looking into. But um, again, I think the technology is very interesting because it hasn't solidified into a thing yet, you know, as some other internet sort of products have where they've the very the very architecture of let's say you know a youtube or social media is built around you know your attention and likes and other things virtual reality is very it's to be determined you know and i think that's what's really exciting about it there's virtual reality that's passive. There's virtual reality that's social. There's virtual reality that has AI characters in it. There's virtual reality that, you know, is 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 a game. And there's virtual reality that's absolutely like a documentary, you know. So I think those are the things that I find to be fascinating. And I think once you kind of um, realize that there's much more there, um, 
you start to take it more seriously. Now, in terms of as clinicians or as bioethicists, as scientists, um, you know, just do a Google Scholar search of virtual reality, you know. It just is an exponentially growing field of research and interest. And I think that's where, you know, one has to kind of take it more seriously because something is happening and it's important to kind of be a part of that. Interesting. Um, And I know within the healthcare setting, VR is um, being used, for example, for pain management. Uh, What are your suggestions for making therapeutic immersive technologies accessible to every patient, regardless of their socioeconomic status? Because, you know, usually newer technologies are afforded for those who could afford them. But what about individuals who are poor or middle class? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, I, I believe very strongly in that, um, you know, where not only should they receive VR treatment, um, but I think a, a broader way is we uh, need to think about the skills we are developing for for a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. And, and encompass that in a very broad way. I mean, young people love games in general. I'm, I'm generalizing, but I have a 10-year-old, and, and, and I'm sure people who have children know how much uh, games are a part of, um, have become a bigger part of people's lives than maybe when I was younger, although I was, I was really into games too. But I think that's a good sort of way because a lot of the... Um, what what are called game engines, the kind of software that's used to make games, um, is very similar to what is used to make virtual reality and augmented reality experiences. So I I kind of feel like we have to kind of shift people from being these consumers of of these games and try to get people to kind of understand the building blocks of how this all works, you know. And I think not a lot of that was done maybe 20 years ago with the internet and everything it was this sort of like geek thing you did and it, and it alienated uh, you know people of different genders and different races and everything who didn't feel like they could be a part of it and i think now is the time if we're really really serious to use the avenue of young people's sort of love for games to kind of introduce them to a skill set that I think is going to make them much more critical and and also create things that we couldn't dream of, you know, um, in in some ways. So I think um, that's how I think we would tackle the the socioeconomic uh, question is that we have to bring this type of technology and skills building very early on to young people as soon as they are getting involved with these types of technologies and not just exploit them to you know sell them more games i think they should be able to create things and to understand how all these things work and that's going to open up now a link into blockchain and understanding different currencies and uh nfts and you know scanning you know their objects to kind of create a 3d world with their games i mean there's so much and i think all of these things are are going to make them more uh, active, kind of digital, civic-minded people, um, and I think it's it's an urgent situation, um, and and that's that's what I would you know would really really emphasize. And I know 
we're always playing catch up on the socioeconomic sort of thing where, you know, it's like, oh yeah, now like let's give them some data science classes and coding, you know, it's a little bit too late when, you know, they're, you know, give it to them now so that they could be a part of the wealth that is going to be there in these new companies and new opportunities. If you know how to make NFTs right now, and you know something about blockchain and you can actually deliver on something, you can get investment. You know, you have to be a first mover advantage. And why aren't we doing that for people who, you know, would benefit the most from it? So that's where I think we have to think about things very differently and, and where, you know, I'd like to focus um, a lot more of my, my future work on. Thank you for listening to another great conversation on bioethics in the margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung. Our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas. And we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jung and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.